millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Welcome to the Gilded Age and Progressive Era a podcast about the United States and the world in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. I'm your host, Michael Patrick Cullinane. Welcome back to the show. When did the cloak and dagger world of modern intelligence gathering begin? When did spooks and spies trade in secrets and counterespionage? Naturally, if we're talking about it on this show, the answer is the Gilded Age and Progressive Era. Now, I would not have thought that that was the case, But this week, we are joined by Mark Stout from Johns Hopkins University, where he teaches at the Advanced Academic Programs Division. Mark was, before being an educator, an intelligence analyst with the State Department and the Central Intelligence Agency. More recently, he teaches global security studies, and he is the co-editor of Georgetown University Press's Studies in Intelligence History book series. He's also a contributing editor to the website War on the Rocks. So who better to have written the book on pre-World War II intelligence history? Mark's book is aptly titled World War I and the Foundations of American Intelligence. Welcome to the show, Mark. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's a real pleasure. Well, let me also start off by praising this book. I really like it. And let me tell you why I like it so much. It's exactly the kind of study that shows the evolution of something before we often consider the, the genesis. So in this case, we're talking about intelligence And your basic thesis is that modern military intelligence did not spring from the creation of the Central Intelligence Agency, but had a long tail stretching all the way back to before World War I. So how does the Great War and the Gilded Age transform intelligence gathering? And and how can we define modern as opposed to not modern intelligence? Yeah, no, so that's a a great set of questions there. Um, On the, the modern versus not modern side, uh, what I'm looking at is the question of the development of the various sub-disciplines of intelligence. And I'm arguing that if you've got those in place in a recognizable way, in a way that would be recognizable to intelligence professionals of World War II or, frankly, up to the current day, that you've got modern intelligence. So what do I mean by that? By the end of the First World War, the United States had people who were conducting espionage operations, recruiting and running spies. We had people who were doing uh, signals intelligence, code breaking, and then deriving intelligence from that and some other related ways of deriving intelligence from radio signals. We had people doing aerial photography and photo interpretation to derive intelligence. We had people using open source intelligence 
So reading German newspapers or whatever it is to get information. We had um, analysts who were taking this, these masses of information and figuring out what in them was useful and what was going on, uh, transforming that raw information, if you will, into what we would today call finished intelligence. We had people conducting counterintelligence and counterespionage operations on the defensive side. And we were even conducting, uh, and this is sort of the most anemic of all of, of all of these, but we were even conducting what we would recognize today as covert action. So basically those are the, 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 the disciplines that make up the bulk of the intelligence profession these days as well. And those were all there by the end of, uh, by November 11th, 1918. That's basically what I'm, what I'm arguing. So, yeah, so that's great. And I think, and it often, I think is overlooked in how we consider military history. Certainly, I don't think a lot of people think about the Spanish-American war and intelligence and you dedicate a, a great deal, well, a chapter of your book to that and then a chapter to the Philippines. Um, but, uh, but so we can set this up a little bit for folks that might not be aware of subdisciplines of military intelligence. I'll be honest, I didn't know, I didn't think about intelligence that way until I read your book. Um, Good. <laughs> yeah, you answered the what of this. I want to get to the who and the where. So who are the, the major innovators in these subdisciplines of intelligence? And where are they working in the Gilded Age, given that there is no central intelligence agency? I argue in the book that it's during World War I that you get the full blossoming of all of these various subdisciplines. But the fundamental notion of having intelligence organizations, intelligence staffs or agencies or, or whatever, comes out of basically the 1870s and the 1880s. And you know, the United States in every war that it had fought previously, um, 1812 pretty marginally, but nonetheless, in every war, the armies in, uh, that went into the field had intelligence conducted intelligence operations. And the, the primary tools of you know, the intelligence business at that time were the, were the telescope, the pencil, the paper, and the horse. Uh, and that was about it, right? And, and these were not typically differentiated staff functions. It was you know, uh, given to cavalry or whoever was able to conduct whatever you know, uh, observational, usually, activity needed to be done. Now, during the Civil War, both uh, the um, Federal Army and also the Confederate Army put together very sophisticated intelligence staffs that were actually doing um, some pretty high-speed stuff um, uh, across a number of these disciplines. But when the war ended, obviously the Confederate Army vanished with, with its intelligence staff and its intelligence lessons learned. But also, because on the Union side, these intelligence efforts had been at the level, primarily at the level of armies in the field, not uh, the War Department in Washington. Again, when there's this you know, massive demobilization, all those organizations go away and basically no lessons are, are retained. So in the post-Civil War era, the Army and the Navy, for that matter, too, go through a you know, lengthy period of doldrums and are really in all kinds of ways falling far behind the um, sort of, uh, you know, world standards, right? At one point, there's a, a reference work uh, done um, uh, out of Britain comparing various navies around the world. And the U.S. Navy is ranked behind those of uh, Peru and Egypt and Greece and whatnot. You know, we are not at the cutting edge of much of anything. So what then develops in both the Navy and the Army is a reform movement uh, starting in the 1870s. The key initial effort was taken by the Army. Um, in 1875, Commanding General William Tecumseh Sherman 
sends a Civil War veteran, a guy named um, uh, Emery Upton, on a tour around the world to see what armies around the world are doing that we can learn from. And when he comes back, and in 1878, he delivers his report, and actually it's published as a book, The Armies of Asia and Europe. And basically, he says, look, on the organizational and administrative side, we're way behind in all these different ways, and he had a whole slew of recommendations. And one of his recommendations is to create um, an intelligence office within the War Department. And what he's doing here is he's um, really following on uh, particularly European and especially German innovations or you know, the steps that they've been taking. Um, between um, 1860, well, basically between 1861 and 1871, the Germans had fought a series of three very successful wars, first against Austria and Hungary, then against Denmark, and then against France. And they'd been wildly successful. And one of the things that had enabled that success was that the, um, the German, the Prussian general staff had an organization in it that was devoted to gathering data about adversaries or potential adversaries, right? So we're in an era where war is rapidly industrializing and it's now things like, you know, how many rail cars can we get from point A to point B? And how many men can we mobilize in one week? And how many artillery pieces can we produce per month? And how many of those men can we get to the, from their barracks to, you know, the border of Denmark or wherever in how much time? Very data intensive. And so the Germans, of course, are studying these kinds of questions about their own militaries to know their own capabilities so they can also write war plans. But they realize they need an office to look at the adversary and do the same calculations on behalf of the adversary. And that's what Emory Upton says, hey, we need to create. Um, the, uh, the Navy is actually the first to basically do this. They established the Office of Naval Intelligence in 1883. And then the uh, War Department, I think seriously, at least in part because they didn't want to be shown up by the Navy, created what be became known as the Military Intelligence Division in 1885. And these were basically meant to be the data guys who were looking primarily at adversaries so that we could plan wars. And, um, and also one other aspect that particularly with the Navy, though also with the Army or the War Department, is uh, they also use these intelligence organizations to acquire information about the latest military, naval and military technologies. You know, what are the innovations in armor on battleships in Europe? And what are the latest, you know, um, uh, engines for driving ships and those sorts of things because we've fallen so far behind. And basically what I argue then is that these things carry on with some, you know, some fits and starts, but carry on until World War One. And then of course, World War One leads to, you know, it's huge, right? Um, and, innovation in the um, intelligence realm just accelerates rapidly. Thanks. I think that does give us a sense of, you know, the, well, actually, I think today, too, of course, the military intelligence occurs within the branches uh, as well, within the, you know, sort of military branches like the Marines and the, the Navy, they have that as well. But I was really interested to learn that the State Department had a pretty good Bureau of Secret Intelligence. That's absolutely right. It's a really interesting story, and I'm hoping to write something that's specifically focused on this. But what happened was, so World War I, of course, starts in Europe in the late summer of 1914. The United States will not end up joining the war until April of um, 1917. So we had a two and a half or so year gap in there during which the war is going on, but we are neutral. Um, but during this period, the United States is 
um, selling munitions and, and ammunition to um, allies, to the allies, but not to the Germans or the Austro-Hungarians, um, number one. And number two, there's a big public debate, if you will. There's, there's not a, a, any sort of a unified view among the American public who we should be rooting for. Uh, or if indeed we should be rooting against all of them because this is to enrich, you know, uh, fat cat capitalists, which was more the, the socialist view. Um, the support of the American public for one side or the other was very much up in play. So given these two things, the Germans and also to a lesser degree, the Austro-Hungarians, uh, primarily through their embassies and consulates in the United States, um, were conducting what we would call influence operations, propaganda operations, if you will, and also sabotage operations. The Germans, uh, for instance, mounted a campaign to sabotage American ships, which were carrying ammunition to the French, the British, the Russians, uh, and firebomb them specifically. And there were 30 some US ships where firebombs uh, went off, or in I think one or two cases, if I recall correctly, were discovered before they went off. Um, no ships were sunk, but you know this was this was not a good thing. Um, and there were other sabotage operations too, um, an effort to blow up a bridge connecting Maine with Canada, um, and a couple of ammunition dumps were blown up, most famously including uh, one in um, uh, New Jersey um, called Black Tom, which was a small island that was an ammo dump. Uh, for, at that time, it had ammunition. Um, destined for Russia, and German agents, there were agents recruited by Germany, more specifically, blew it up, which caused tremendous damage um, in the, you know, the New York area. Uh, in fact, you, I'm told, I've never been there, but I'm told that you can still, still see chips and scars on the Statue of Liberty created by this. So there's a lot of stuff, and of course, the, the Germans are also conducting intelligence operations to um, uh, support people, populations in the United States that didn't necessarily like the British. So um, uh, the East Indian population, for instance, and also the British and the Germans were in a big sort of clandestine slash covert war with each other in the United States. So there was a lot of uh, central power intelligence activity, some of it literally violent uh, going on in the United States. And so the State Department um, started uh, a, a, um, an intelligence effort, a counterintelligence effort to try and collect on this and to keep it under control. Now, some of this work was actually done here in the United States by State Department employees, but they also um, borrowed, if you will, Secret Service agents um, and other agents from other bits of the federal government to do this work for them. And, um, and slowly, um, even before the United States was in war, it actually started turning into also not just the domestic counterintelligence and sort of security effort, but also into co collecting intelligence clandestinely outside the country. And, and during the war itself, the um, State Department was conducting espionage operations that, you know, the nature of which would look very familiar to people in the CIA today um, in places like Revolutionary Russia and Switzerland and, and some other places. So yeah, State Department became an important player I think our friends that work in diplomatic history would be really interested to learn that there was a bureau uh, like that. I mean, but it does in some ways make sense. And what I really like about your book is that the intelligence gathering that you talk about requires intelligence. I mean, it's really a story of professionalization, 
the growth of expertise, and to a degree, intellectualism. Am I right in saying that? Oh, that's that's absolutely right. Yes, that's absolutely right. There are certainly lots of people during the period of my book who are put in intelligence jobs who should not have been there. Okay. Uh, that said, there is definitely um, an understanding among the, you know, the thought leaders and the people who are sort of re reflect on, on this business that most intelligence work requires people who have something between their ears, right? And know how to think and know how to reason. Um, that's number one. And number two, the other aspect that you touched on is it becomes clear to, I mean, even as early as these reformers who were thinking about these kinds of issues in the 1870s and 1880s, that the traditional American method of dealing with intelligence, for lack of a better word, is we don't do much of anything until there's a war, and then we stand up an, an intelligence effort for the duration of the war, and then we get rid of it after the war. Well, they say that's not satisfactory because for modern war, right, these industrialized wars with uh, you know, mass mobilization and railways and telegraphs and whatever, right? There's a lot of information you need to collect before the war because you won't have time during the war. The generals will need it, right? But you won't have time during the war to collect it and it will be more difficult to collect, right? In peacetime, for instance, we have army and navy attaches who are accredited to our, um, I forget if it was an embassy or legation, I think it was a legation in Berlin, for instance. They can collect just overtly, they can collect intelligence. We can send officers either um, you know, clandestinely or openly to go visit Germany. They can acquire maps. They can take, you know, uh, go around the countryside and, and make notes about where there are fortifications or whatever the heck, right? There's a lot of things you can do in peacetime to collect information that your generals are going to need that they will not have the time and the ability to get during wartime. Um, so, yeah, so intelligence it starts being understood as something that we need to be doing all the time. Yeah, we'll step it up when there's a war, but we need to be doing it all the time. Otherwise, we're setting ourselves up for failure. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. 
So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Yeah, I, I think that's, for me, this period is so important from that professionalization and expert building perspective. I think it happens across all of the major agencies. I, I also really like the other myth that your book busts, which is that the British are so much better at intelligence gathering than anyone else. I mean, you mentioned the Germans there, but certainly that they're better than the Americans. And that's not entirely so, right? Yeah, uh, that's that's true. Um, I mean, I guess I'd, I'd, I'd make a couple of points about this. So um, there are, it's it's widely held, certainly not universally, but it's widely held that, you know, what the United States knows about intelligence, it learned from the British, um, primarily in World War II. Um, and that, you know, it's we did, in fact, work a lot with the British during the World War II era and subsequently for that matter and, and did indeed learn from them. But um, uh, we were learning from the British earlier than that, you know, before World War One, by reading professional journal articles, a great number of articles from British professional military journals were reprinted in American military journals. But also and equally importantly, we were learning from the French from the Germans, to a lesser degree from the Austro-Hungarians. Um, and I've even seen um, a few, I don't want to overemphasize this, but a few articles in the journals of the time that about intelligence-related matters that were reprinted from Argentinian military journals. So the United States was very much learning from all of the leading powers that sort of the people on the cutting edge of intelligence uh, business from, as I say, from the beginning of this reform movement. In fact, looking at what foreigners were doing was a big inspiration for us. And, and the leader there was Germany, with France as a close second, um, all the way up through World War I. And while I think it is fair to say that during our, during the American time in World War I, we never quite got our intelligence efforts up to the level of what the British and the French were doing, but we were pretty close by the end. We were very rapid studies once it got going. And, you know, by the end of World War One, we were American intelligence efforts um, and American intelligence personnel were, were viewed with, you know, respect as solid colleagues and partners by their, you know, primarily by their British and French counterparts, because that's mostly who we worked with. I wondered about that. Is there a language difficulty here? I mean, that the United States is probably, it might be easier to learn from the likes of the British, certainly because they have the same language, but the French and German, there's plenty of French and German speakers in, in the United States. Japan, Russia, um, maybe other countries is a little bit harder. Is that something that you found in your research? Didn't focus a whole lot on that per se, but what I can say, a couple of thoughts on that. So first, during the period of the war itself, you know, with the American expeditionary forces in France, our forces are stationed primarily with the French on their left and their right, right? Um, but we do loan some divisions to the British. And there's learning going on here in, in both directions. And obviously, more American soldiers speak English than speak French. So there's a certain ease of, of this communication, obviously, um, 
you know, both a formal and informal kinds of ways between the Americans and the British, certainly. Um, but, uh, and, and also I should say that when uh, General Pershing's G2, so his chief intelligence officer, a guy named um, ultimately Brigadier General Dennis Nolan, a real intellectual, by the way, um, uh, when, it, when he comes over, um, when, he, when Pershing and Nolan come over, they realize that they need to uh, establish sort of regulations, if you will, for the conduct of AEF intelligence. And basically what they do is they borrow the intelligence regulations from one of the five British armies. And I forget which it was, but they, they basically take that as their starting point and then do some minor edits. So sort of the day in, day out procedures, um, it, it's more or less the headquarters level for how intel is going to work, are essentially borrowed from the British. And we borrow other things from the British too. But the French, we're, we're in a, interacting more with the French. And if you start looking at the sort of next level down of uh, detail in intelligence matters, the American expeditionary forces were translating and incorporating as their, what we would call field manuals or tactical manuals today, or technical manuals rather, um, French doctrinal documents, just translating them from French and slapping the AEF logo on them and disseminating them to the troops. So a lot of the more micro level regulations, instructions, whatever, on how American troops um, were to conduct intelligence activities were borrowed from the French. The top level stuff borrowed from the British, the lower level stuff borrowed from the French. No, that, that makes perfect sense. I mean, I think that, that really adds to what I was saying because obviously there is a language barrier there, at least in terms of how many sp people speak foreign languages in French, German, and, and Spanish, and English, obviously, are the, the top languages for the U.S., but of course they had, they were in the field by World War I with the British and French, so that makes perfect sense. One quick thought I want to put out on Japan. Japan was of increasing concern from, you know, basically the turn of the century, um, 1898, you know, 1900, um, up through World War One, as being a potential American rival, and they yes, they were on the Allied side um, during World War One, but the Americans were not were deeply suspicious of the Japanese and their intentions, and also of the what they perceived as being a fairly widespread Japanese espionage um, aimed at you know U.S. or U.S. interests or sniffing perilously close to us. But particularly, but that language barrier was a real problem. And, um, you know, the United States is going to find um, both before World War One and then, you know, in the, the years short, you know, between in the interwar period, um, the Japan is a really, what we would call today, a hard target to collect on. Not only is it, um, you know, a language that not a lot of people in the intelligence world speak, but also internal to Japan, there's tremendous, you know, internal security efforts, right? It's in a lot of ways analogous to the, you know, the great difficulties that the CIA had on collecting human intelligence in the Soviet Union, um, you know, were, were problems that the U.S. Uh, was facing collecting on Japan from turn of the century, well, up to World War II, really. Turn of the century takes us back in a way that I, I have so many questions about the American Expeditionary Forces, but I have a big question about the Philippines, because it's often been said that the Philippines is one of the major testing grounds for American military intelligence. So what are the successes and failures there during the Philippine-American War, and how do they then leave a legacy for later intelligence activities? 
Yeah, so the Philippine War starts out inauspiciously from the intelligence angle, uh, but ends uh, with some fairly impressive efforts underway. So, you know, when the decision was made that, you know, we're going to fight Spain, and, and part of that is going to be a campaign in the Philippines, um, there was essentially no intelligence worth mentioning available um, on what was on the Philippines and what was going on uh, in the Philippines. Um, I forget if it was the if it was Army intelligence or Navy intelligence offhand, but at one point, all they could deliver was a uh, a copy of a an article from the Encyclopedia Britannica on the Philippines, and they stamped uh, confidential on it, right? And uh, you know the uh, the decision to um, basically you know make the Philippines a, an American pr um, uh, possession was also made on the basis of bad intelligence. The, the commanding general, uh, a US commanding general, he was trying to collect human intelligence on sort of the popular feelings and the politics and whatnot inside the Philippines, but um, particularly in the Manila area, but <laughs> he, he didn't, he and his uh, intel folks didn't think adequately carefully about this and all of their sources about what was on the minds of the people and what the popular sentiments were, were from the economic upper classes in Manila. Um, and from them, they determined that, uh, you know, what the Filipinos really, really want is to be, you know, owned by the United States. Uh, and basically that decision went forward and lo and behold, that actually wasn't the way most Filipinos felt. It was the way a certain slice of the upper crust in Manila felt, but not didn't generalize. And so we end up with an insurgency that goes on for quite some time. In that insurgency, however, some um, really solid intelligence efforts were were undertaken. And the US Army realized very early on that um, it needed to create an intelligence organization whose job specifically was to focus on the insurgents. And they put together, um, um, files, well, file card systems, really, on, I, you know, named insurgents and sort of, you know, uh, influencers, for lack of a better term, priests and, and whatnot, who might interact with or have some potential influence positively or negatively on the insurgency. Um, and these card files were held not only at the Bureau of Insurgent Records at, at the Army headquarters, but also down through the levels of you know, the, the military echelons. And so the way this would work would be, um, you know, I'm making this up, is some regiment somewhere acquires information about you know, some insurgents we didn't know about or you know, information to you know, add further detail or to update what we knew about a particular set of insurgents operating in their area. Okay, so they would make or update uh, you know, a, uh, a file card for their own records. And then they'd send copies up the chain. So the next higher headquarters and then the central headquarters, the Bureau of Insurgent Records at the at the army level in the Philippines would also get copies of this. Of this. So everybody had sort of the common picture as to who, who are we fighting and what do we know about them in various places around the country. And if higher headquarters got new information about people operating in that regiment's area, um, they would make out a card for themselves and they'd send one up and they'd send one down to the people who were actually on the ground in that bit of the Philippines. Um, you know, file card systems were pretty high speed information technology at the time. And the US Army made uh, really, really good use of those. 
And um, it brought that idea um, and sort of the ethos of thinking about counterinsurgency, which has a lot in common with counterintelligence, back to the military intelligence division in Washington. Um, and, and a lot of that came um, through basically one guy, a guy named Ralph Van Diemen, who uh, worked on this um, in the Philippines for the Army, and then ends up heading the military intelligence division for roughly the first year the United States is in, in the war, and then goes off to become a senior advisor in, if I recall correctly, April of um, 1918. I may be wrong in the precise month, but he goes off to become a senior intelligence advisor to Dennis Nolan. General Pershing's intel officer in France. He's, he's viewed as the, 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 the father of American military intelligence. That's a term you'll hear frequently. And he really cut his teeth in the Philippines, um, conducting intelligence operations on and building card files on Filipino insurgents. That's really interesting. I mean, I think some of the other things that we hear so frequently about are, say, the water cure as a counter, uh, mm -hmm. counter intelligence, counter. Um, as an interrogation tool, yeah. Right. Yeah. Or also the intel failures that might have led to the Battle of Bajau and the basically massacre of hundreds of women, children. Um, what about those in the Philippines? How are those sort of fed into the Mer American war machine to try and, I don't know, to learn from lessons or maybe they're not learned at all? On the water cure, um, you know, one or two thoughts there. So, yeah, uh, so th this was to enhance interrogation term I swear I've heard somewhere before. Um, and I'm sure that a lot of the information obtained from those interrogations using the water cure ended up in these card files. I mean, I can't cite chapter and verse, but it stands, stands to reason. But, but I would say also the water cure um, was one of the reasons that the U.S. Army um, did not publish its history of the Philippine War and did not make any effort to formal effort, that is to say, to disseminate lessons learned in the Philippines to the broader army. Now, as I've said, you know, some of the intel lessons came back, but particularly through specific personalities. You've been there and now we're in Washington or now we're in France, whatever. Um, but the United States public in general was pretty queasy about, you know, many of them about the water cure, pretty ugly thing. And also more broadly, sort of with a, you know, philosophical level, right? Um, Americans took seriously this notion that, you know, we fought a revolution to be uh, free of, uh, you know, foreign domination. And we believe that people should, in, you know, should be able to determine that, you know, population should be able to determine their own destinies. And we're kind of, we're kind of sympathetic to these Filipinos who want to have independence from from their, you know, colonial overlords, like we, you know, looks kind of just like the United States has simply replaced Spain in that regard, which was, you know, more or less true, right? And so there was, the whole war left the United States Army um, and the U.S. public with a just sort of a sense of unease, and so the that led basically then to the to the Army not wanting to talk about it. Uh, so a lot of the lessons um, about counterinsurgency, for instance. Uh, there were, you know, hard-won lessons in that war were not disseminated and not carried on, except in an informal sense, largely through personalities. I mean, that sort of leads me to a question about whether politics has much to do with the evolution of the intelligence community. 
Uh, yeah, so that's an interesting question. And, you know, it depends on how you think about what is politics. Um, I would say that uh, reform movement of the 1870s, 1880s that led to the creation of the first two intelligence organizations in the U.S., O&I, or the enduring ones, O&I and the Military Intelligence Division of the War Department, they weren't in it. They were driven by sort of bottom-up um, zealous reformers in the Army and the Navy, not driven top-down by, you know, Washington-level processes that were politically driven desires to reform the Army and, you know, have it in cell office, right? Now, obviously, they fit into a, you know, a broader context uh, about, <laughs> you know, the kinds of issues that you're an expert in in the in the, in the, the Gilded Age and the Progressive Era, um, but they weren't sort of on their face political issues. Now, now that said, um, one of the main um, components of both military and naval intelligence that we haven't really talked about is, of course, both of these organizations are um, sending attaches, military attaches, or army attaches, navy attaches, to serve at U.S. embassies and legations overseas as military diplomats, but also to collect um, overt, i.e., you know, freely available intelligence, right? Not recruiting spies to steal secrets, just sending back, you know, uh, to Washington notes on the briefing that the Prussian army just gave or reporting what's in the Parisian newspapers about what the French Navy is doing or whatever, right? Um, but depending on what president we're talking about, um, there, there may be um, a greater or lesser number of other kinds of tasks. And, um, you know, um, some presidents, uh, for instance, um, see the attaches as, yeah, you've got an intelligence collection or an information collection function, but really what we want you to do is to go out there and get contracts for the United States to, you know, build ships or weapons or whatever for whatever country you're accredited to, right? Uh, dollar diplomacy, uh, basically. Um, and so the the amount of effort that they're able to devote to intelligence versus other kinds of efforts, you know, comes waxes and wanes primarily with the presidents. Um, and the, and the other thing I just thought briefly on the attaches, I'd note, um, being an attache was a difficult business. Well, it, let me phrase this. It was difficult to find the right person to do it. So not only would there be issues of like, you know, do you speak the relevant language or not, but also attaches like diplomats, like State Department diplomats, were expected to, you know, entertain a lot, right? Do representational social functions, right? Um, have, you know, German officers over to their house for dinner and, you know, whatever all else, right? Throw cocktail parties for all the attaches in London, whatever. Um, but there wasn't a government allowance to do this. So really the only people who could actually serve as attaches were those who not only hopefully had their relevant language skills and uh, appropriate rank, but also who had, who were more or less independently wealthy. And so they could afford to throw a whole lot of parties. Um, on behalf of the U.S. government, but unreimbursed. Right, absolutely. Just like the diplomatic corps at this time as well. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. All right, well, let me ask a question for a friend here, uh, Professor Sam Edwards, who is at Loughborough University. I know he's researching on the AEF. And um, what was the intelligence operations of the American Expeditionary Forces? You mentioned that they were on the flank of the French in World War One, but what are they doing in terms of intelligence on the ground? Yeah, so good question. The AEF has its G2 shop under Dennis Nolan, and then it quickly then, as 
um, as you know, the first army and then corps and divisions under that are built. It, it replicates miniature versions of that down the various uh, echelons um, down to the, the, the tactical level. And um, and again, it's it's one of these vertically integrated kinds of things in a lot of ways, much like how I was just mentioning the file cards about Filipino insurgents would be sent up and down the chain, right? Um, similar sorts of things going on in the AEF. The AEF had um, um, four big branches. Um, one was G2A, which was about collection um, and analysis of almost everything. G2B, which did espionage specifically and also counter-espionage um, in the in the American rear area and up, you know among the U.S. forces, and then C and D, which did um, mapping and topography and censorship and press relations and a bunch of other things like that. On G two A side, there were people um, who were um, uh, doing um, code breaking, uh, using um, exploiting rather the German signals intercepted by the Signal Corps. Actually, code breaking and then decrypting of German messages, um, tapping German um, uh, uh, field telephones uh, lines, that sort of thing. There were people doing aerial photography um, or, or, or more to the point, actually exploiting photography taken by lower echelons. Um, there were people who um, were um, uh, reading German newspapers and whatnot when they could get them. There were analysts putting all of this together, um, of sort of the big picture, particularly in order of battle. What is the organization, the strength and the disposition in space of the German forces we're facing? And this is something where uh, cooperation among the allies was particularly important because, and they would share quite freely with each other on this. So for instance, right, if a I don't know, a German division opposite the British suddenly is pulled out of the line there and sort of somewhere in the German rear area. Well, the British would want the French and the Americans to know this because that division may show up opposite them someday soon, right? And vice versa, for instance. Um, and um, uh, also more specialized people who are studying the German Air Force, keeping card files on German airfields, even at one point on German pilots, and also doing today what we would call foreign material exploit foreign material exploitation. So if a German plane is, crashes or is brought down behind friendly lines, American lines, go look at the plane. And um, can we learn you know, new things about aeronautical engineering? Look at the cameras that may be on the plane. You know, can we learn anything from what they're doing there? Um, machine gun design, have they you know, improved their machine guns recently? All that sort of stuff. The whole range of things uh, going going on in, in in this regard, the espionage component of it was um, fairly modest, I would say, but um, it was focused less on interestingly enough, focused less on immediate battlefield things and more on um, more strategic intelligence collection deep into the enemy rear, um, and this makes sense. Like unlike in well, frankly, all of the previous American wars. This was not a war in which you could easily send people out to, you know, scout behind enemy lines um, and, you know, and then return with, with information, right? It was a continuous front line. 
that you know uh, had one end at the Swiss border and the other end at the at the the North Sea or the English Channel, right? Um, there there weren't flanks to slip around, um, and so you know espionage in a sort of an observational kinds of sense. Let's penetrate the lines with spies wasn't really a thing. But what G2B was doing in terms of espionage, uh, and this got going very late, what it was doing was running um, networks of agents um, in particularly in the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And here, um, this was largely handled by a guy named Emmanuel Viktor Boska, who was a Czechoslovak immigrant to the United States. Uh, he had he had been a, a close ally, confidant of Thomas Masaryk. Um, and through those connections that they had before World War I, they, they were in connection with various networks of people in the Austro-Hungarian Empire, typically those who belonged to ethnic groups other than the Hungarians and the Austrians who wanted independence or at least greater, greater autonomy for their people um, and who thought that the allies winning the war would be a, a, a way to do that. So we were getting more sort of strategic level espionage collection. Don't want to overstate this, but it was happening from the deep enemy rear about things like military production and uh, domestic morale and you know like calorie consumption of the population, that sort of stuff. Voska also was putting together and how much of this little bits of this at least came to fruition how much of it came to fruition i don't know but he was using many of these same kinds of networks to um, conduct what we would call covert action or at least prepare to conduct covert action um particularly um you know blowing things up um at one point there was you know discussion of can we can we block the danube uh for instance um so that was the general the general flavor of what the AEF itself was doing. And, and almost everything here was done in greater or lesser cooperation with the British and the French. So this is, I mean, I hope everyone is understanding how broad this study yeah. of intelligence is here. I mean, what we've talked about so far is a lot about espionage, obviously a lot about traditional intelligence gathering, whether it's, you know, listening or uh, having uh, informants. But we're also talking about domestic intelligence. You know, counting calories is not something that you that springs to mind when you think about cloak and dagger. But this is, of course, part of it. And I just want to, yeah, I mean, I want to give you an opportunity to kind of sum this all up because your book is, it's got the second half of the book really deals in in a lot of detail with things like the airplane, the radio, domestic uh, intelligence. Um, and on espionage, for sure, the types, in a way, of of intelligence yeah. gathering. What are the legacies of the, you know, if we take the book as a whole, what are the legacies of intelligence gathering in this Gilded Age and Progressive Era? Yeah. So, I mean, if I had to sort of give the the, the big arc of this, right, it's the this this idea begins to begins to sprout in an era of military reform, sort of after the post after the post Civil War doldrums, and then grows and becomes fits and starts as i've said you know more sophisticated by the time we enter the united under world war one takes off dramatically both in um size and breadth um but also new kinds of endeavors some of which we talked about um and in sophistication and quality during world war one then of course after world war ii there's a, a big demobilization but, and this is the important part, with the exception of covert action, all of these ideas and the sort of methods of operating 
um, and basic functions continue in the United States to World War II, where of course, again, they get massively expanded again, right? So it's often suggested that the United States, yeah, we they did some some stuff in intelligence in World War One, and then they they got rid of all of it, and then they had to build it again in World War Two (parentheses with British help). Well, they didn't get rid of all of it. Um, it continued, and in fact, I looked at the numbers, and uh, during the interwar period, if you um, correlate the size of the U.S. Army, so the number of soldiers in the U.S. Army. Um, with the number of people in the War Department's Military Intelligence Division, they move almost exactly together, the, right? The correlation is near perfect, right? And nobody says the U.S. Army went away in the interwar period, but a lot of people seem to think that the U.S. intelligence effort went away in the, in the interwar period. It didn't. It just got slimmed down, but the key ideas carried through um, to World War II, and then, and which then lays the foundation for Cold War, post-Cold War. Um, and they, they do this in a number of ways. So first off, a number of personalities who were involved in intelligence in World War I go on to be either involved in intelligence in World War II or in senior command positions in World War II. Um, you know, a shining example is, is Joseph Stilwell. He uh, was actually did intel work in the Philippines. Um, sorry, not in the Philippines. He did intel work for the military intelligence division um, before World War I. Um, in World War I, he was the G2, so the Chief Intelligence Officer for the Fourth Corps in France. And then, you know, in World War II, he goes on to be a, a senior a commander in the, uh, as a general, senior commander in the China Burma India Theater. And I, you know, he, he would have brought what he knew about intelligence with him. That's one example. Uh, William Friedman, um, who was a code breaker in the American Expeditionary Forces in France in the interwar period. He leads the team for the War Department who um, breaks the Japanese diplomatic cipher that we call purple. Um, and then he goes on to be a, a key part of that effort um, against the second effort against the Japanese during World War II and actually ends his career in the early 50s as a senior executive at the National Security Agency. So there are people who go through. Um, there are also in a sort of the formal sense of um, um, organizations continue, I guess I touched on this, but also in the, the realm of ideas, um, you know, not specifically written ideas, not specifically ideas in the, in the heads of people. So for instance, after, right after World War I, many parts of the army and the war department wrote, you know, a history of what we did in the war. And a lot of these were um, actually published publicly. Um, but the military intelligence division in Washington decided, yeah, we're gonna do a history, but we're gonna make it secret. In fact, we're only gonna have one copy of it um, and we're gonna make it secret so that we can really let it all hang out in this thing. Like what we did right, what we did wrong, where we screwed up, what we can learn from the whole kit caboodle. It's 2,200 pages. But the neat thing is that it, at least into the early thirties, any new officer who got assigned to the military intelligence division, the first however many days, he was like literally put in an office and said, read the history of what we did in World War I. So it carries through in that way. Also, um, you see, um, again, what we would call field manuals and technical manuals and that sort of thing. Um, in you know, the, the three, four years after World War I, there's a big effort to bring lessons learned from the war into these um, 
intelligence field manuals and, and also field manuals on other military topics. Um, and then those just variegate and get more and more numerous and numerous and numerous right up to World War II. But if you look at what's being written in these doctrinal manuals about intelligence, you can very clearly see the World War I experience in there. It's very clear. It just gets more sophisticated and variegated, if you will, over time. But you can trace really clearly a lot of these ideas and these organizational concepts. Um, and so, um, and then also, you know, a lot of people start writing um, uh, officers, write professional military journal articles. They end up on like the staff of the War College or the um, Command and Staff College at Fort Leavenworth, et cetera, and teach this stuff. So, you know, these ideas, the people, organizations, and ideas all carry through the interwar period, albeit, you know, reduced in volume uh, from what it had been during World War One, and then very much inform what we're doing in World War Two. not only in the military side, um, but also in the OSS, and I would argue actually even to a greater extent, frankly, though this is something I think needs more research in the CIA, because in the early days of the CIA, which was formally created in 1947, though there were predecessor organizations for a couple of years before that, most of the people who worked at CIA were actually from the Army, the Navy, or the Air Force. Um, there were very few, initially, very few civilian CIA employees. Um, it was largely people on loan from the military, where they had this intelligence DNA that dated all the way back to World War One and before, sort of in their brains. So anyway, that's a longer answer than you probably wanted. But this is how I, I argue in my last chapter, this carries on and why this isn't just a question of, you know, the Gilded Age up through World War One, but is actually has relevance to later American intelligence history um, as well. Yeah, that's why I ask it, because the last chapter does really pull a lot of this together and show us that through line. What it doesn't say in the last chapter is if anyone can fill the shoes of James Bond in the Gilded Age of Progressive Era, are we going to have a 12-series <laughs> movie with, I don't know, who would it be? Would there be anyone or um, uh, not possible? That's a fine question. And I, I think the, the short answer is no. <laughs> short answer is no. That's a whole that's a whole other discussion about spy fiction. <laughs> Mark, it's a fantastic book, and I think it really does what what the best histories do is they really challenge our interpretation of the past. Yours does that. It gives us a broad scope of what was happening in the realm of military intelligence and other forms of intelligence too. and it and it, it tells us that we were wrong the way we've thought about the long history of intelligence. And so for that, thanks very much, and thanks for joining the show. Well, thank you so much. It's, this is this has been wonderful, and thank you for the kind words about the book. And best of luck with your podcast series. Well, that's all we have time for. Thanks for listening. You can follow the Gilded Age and Progressive Era on Twitter or on my website, michaelpatrickcullinane.com. Please consider subscribing or reviewing the podcast wherever you listen because it really makes a big difference and helps direct others to the show. I hope you'll join me again for the next episode. Hold up. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.